On today's episode, we have Dr. Lisa Lewis. Dr. Lewis is a licensed psychologist with many, many years of both clinical and teaching experience. She is also known as the psych coach for fitness pros. Dr. Lewis works with a wide variety of clientele, but her passion for wellness and fitness has fueled working with trainers and therapists just like yourself. In this episode, we dive into the following topics. Her personal experience with training and pain, what coaching skills trainers are lacking to help motivate their clients and facilitate change, client relationships, the capacity to tolerate clients' discomfort, compassionate presence, and working with tough clients. So without further ado, here is our episode with Dr. Lisa Lewis. I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. Train less pain. Lisa, thank you for joining us today. I'm going to hit you with the hardest question first, which is what was your last workout? Yeah, so today's Tuesday. Uh, so it's a lower body day which is code for deadlift day. <laughs> so, you know, there's a bunch of mobility stuff and movements before that and a few things after that, but that's really the highlight. And I train first thing in the morning. So I need a lot of movement before I get to the the deadlift um, just to make sure I'm not still, <laughs> you know, like creepy from being asleep. Fair enough. So you do a bunch of mobility stuff, warm up, and then what you hit the deadlift, do some stuff in between. Do you do some accessory work after? Yeah, I I've been so mobility stuff. I do some like hopping, some kettlebell swings, right. a bunch of glute bridges just to kind of like wake everything up. I have some reverse lunges right now and um, some reverse crunches, which are kind of brutal actually. And then trap bar at the end there, I've got I've some Copenhagen's. I usually always have some version of a, of a Copenhagen and, um, I'm probably forgetting a few things. Um, also a hip thrust right now. I think it's from a deficit. There's things that like, well, there's a variation, but there's kind of a pattern. <laughs> to yeah. how it goes. You have, have your, your kind of core and then you kind of move pieces around on the outside a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, um, I know you talk about pain a lot on this podcast and I have had my fair share of kind of relapsing and flare ups of different hip pain. And so a lot of the exercises that I do are, I would say probably most of what I'm doing in the gym is like rehabby or strengthening or an attempt to feel better, <laughs> uh, feel less pain. And, um, yeah, probably 97% of what I'm doing in the gym is in the name of that. I enjoy it all, but then there's all these different variations. So um, what, what have been some things that happen and how have you kind of navigated the fitness world through all that, all your uh, aches and pains? Through my own journey, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good Deep question. question. It's a <laughs> It's a hard question because, um, you know, of course you go to the doctor and you want them to say, here's what's wrong and here's how to fix it. And, 
I've been athletic all my life um, and had different aches and pains and nothing really affected me physically and psychologically as much as the hip stuff that I've had going on. So, um, and that it can flare up and, and at times be really terrible. And then that there can be times when it's completely absent and I feel great and everything's I'm functioning well. Um, that has, that I've changed my mind to thinking about it like a journey. Like I'm not going to fix this and never have an issue again. At this point, I just think about what I'm feeling, whether it's good or bad is going to inform how I train. And as long as I can go to the gym and train, I'm going to be happy because that I really love doing that. That's an important part of my identity and how I take care of myself physically, mentally. So I have um, met many different practitioners and kind of think about how, what can this practitioner bring in terms of how they view the problem, how the lens that they're bringing, and then try to have an open mind in working with a practitioner of what exercises are they recommending or how do they think about how the whole body works. Um, and instead of thinking, I've heard some negative things from patients over the years of like, that person couldn't help me or couldn't figure it out. I think about it more as what does a practitioner have to offer? What can I learn from their lens and, and, and their education and how they work, what works for me. And then if it's not working, should I go see someone else? And I haven't hopped a lot, but I've worked with physical therapy, chiropractic. Most recently I've worked with the, um, craniosacral physical therapist. Okay. Yeah. I found to be extremely insightful and helpful in a way that, um, she brought this other lens that I haven't seen before that was helpful. So, uh, I kind of have changed my, it's not about fixing me. It's about this journey of seeing how healthy and how active I can possibly be <laughs> and getting oh. you know, help around the way. Absolutely. So what are some of the like positive components you've seen in the um, clinicians that you've worked with? Um, not even just from like a, a physical standpoint, but even just their uh, approach to you as a client. Well, that's a good. So I really, one practitioner I'd love to work with is a chiropractor whose name is Laura Latham. I don't, you're probably connected to her. I don't know yeah. the name off the top of my head, but Possibly. So Laura and Tim Latham are both chiros. They have a practice called Back Bay Performance, um, Health and Performance. And she very much thinks about how to locate what's hurting, how to think about the function of that, like how you might be moving or not moving or what muscles might be working harder while other muscles are not working so hard. And she kind of talks about, you know, the body being an orchestra and all different parts have different instruments, play different roles. And sometimes certain instruments get really loud and can overpower weaker ones. And I, I have really liked thinking about it that way because it's not that I have this muscle's really weak and I have to, it's that there's an imbalance there. And so how do I help those more quiet instruments like get stronger, get louder, get more active? Mm -hmm. uh, in the overall symphony of life. Um, so I, that practitioner in particular, I like working with because there's a lot of movement in the session. She actually never adjusts me or cracks me. 
Um, it's, it's movement and then identifying exercises that will number one, get me out of pain and, or help to balance any indifferences. And then she sends an email to my trainer, who is my husband and says, here's what I want you to put in Lisa's program, you know, for the next four to six weeks. And then let's see what we get out of that. Um, and that interaction between practitioners, I feel very fortunate to have. And I think it's just so great because my personal trainer slash husband is like, I love having that set of eyes from somebody who understands you know, nerves and spinal cord and things that are kind of outside of my scope and, and what I think about. So yeah, I have good collaboration. That. Yeah, that collaboration. I love that. So in like past, I know this is completely off of what we <laughs> plan to talk about today, but when you work with a practitioner, because like, obviously you do have a well-known husband in the field who has a bunch of connections and so do you. And it's, you really can go see whoever you want. And, you know, I've done this too, where I've kind of liked to work with a practitioner and then, you know, I decide consciously, subconsciously that, you know, it's, it's no longer valuable and I'm kind of ready to move on. And I've gone to other people and you just kind of test out who you like better and what works for you better. And then once you find someone like you really, you really stick to them. Um, and what kind of maybe not red flags, but kind of indicators that maybe your time with someone is probably done. Mm. So personally speaking, personally, yeah, I, I think that when I have worked with somebody who primarily provides manual therapy, mm -hmm that I've thought to myself, like, where is this going? I'm not going to come here once a week or once every two weeks for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. You know, how can I change how my, and like a, one hour a week is a drop in the bucket compared to how many hours a week I'm sitting or doing anything else. So for me, that's nice. It's nice to have some manual therapy, but I, I have felt with a couple of practitioners, like, where is this going? I don't see how I'm going to recover with this model. And that has moved me on or just made it like every once in a while, maybe I'll pop in <laughs> and, and see that kind of practitioner. But I've, I have found that I have gotten much more out of practitioners who assign homework, which is movement, you know, outside of the session yeah. time. That makes sense. And it's, it's awesome just to hear from, even just a client's perspective of like what people look for. Um, but thank you for that. And uh, so you're kind of known as a psych coach for fitness pros, which I think is a pretty cool tagline. Yeah, uh, me too. <laughs> so what is, what does that mean to you? It means two different things. One is for the coach themselves and the coach's psychology. Mm -hmm. Um you know, in my training as a therapist, there is a lot of looking at self and understanding personal history and psychology and how those things impact interactions with clients and how those things impact rapport and motivation of clients and outcomes for clients. And I found the more I was working with fitness professionals, I really came to see what a gaping hole there is in training and really in support for people who are trying to help people change with no education about how who you are impacts 
the relationship and therefore the treatment and its outcome. So one part of how I see that role is how can I help coaches understand how the way they think, the way they feel, their cultural background, their personal experience impacts how they work mm-hmm. and who they work with and what the outcomes are. And then the other side is understanding your clients. So from my point of view, or I guess what I've heard from coaches over the years is like X's and O's and program design, anatomy, physiology, I got it. But like understanding how people's brains work and like how to talk to them to be helpful, you know, that was never a part of my training. And like now I'm out here working with clients and I realize that is the key to sustainability and, you know, preventing turnover and retaining my clients. So it's also understanding your client psychology. What is the nature of motivation and how to understand how dynamic motivation is and multifaceted it is. And that you as the coach are not going to infuse your clients with motivation and then poof, they have motivation and will like be compliant. <laughs> you have very little power, even though we have this idea, right? That we're going to coach people and change people and tell them what to do and they're going to do it. And it will be wonderful for everyone. That's not the way it works. People resist change. So really having a like respect for motivation and then how to work with that, really how to use communication and rapport and be able to tolerate things like client negativity, dropout and return, um, clients who might have some mental health stuff going on for themselves, uh, because that is quite common. And the most precious commodity that there is, in my opinion, is someone's undivided attention. So whether you're a physical therapist or a chiro or a personal trainer, you are giving your undivided attention to another human being for 30 to 55 minutes. And that is so precious. So you better believe if those people have stress or a bad relationship or feel anxious, you are going to hear about that. (laughs) You know, um, coaches ask me all the time about staying in their lane and like how to keep that stuff out of, and I'm like, you cannot keep it out. (laughs) They're human beings and you are paying attention and giving them care and concern. Of course that stuff is going to come up. So it's all the messy squishiness of dealing with clients and that you're not just interacting with them, you have an agenda, which is to help them change their health-related behavior, which is really hard. Very hard. Yes. So they come to you, they sign up for you, they come to the appointments, they pay you money, you say do X, Y, and Z, and they do not do that. What the heck is going on there? You know, that is psychological in nature. So that's the other half of what I like to work on. That's great. I recorded um, an episode with Lucy Hendricks, who owns a gym in Lexington, Kentucky. And um, we were talking about the skills of communication. And and she said she didn't really not find the value, but wasn't good at this stuff until she worked and thought she was only working on her like personal relationships on how to connect with people. And then she realized that it was just bleeding over to just being a better coach and communicating because at the end of the day, we, we all do have a relationship with our clients. Um, do you kind of find that a lot of trainers that you work with use the skills that you're teaching them um, in their personal lives with you know their spouses or their friends? So how has trying to figure it out by yourself been going? Let's see. 
You go to a weekend seminar, but when you return to your clients on Monday, you don't do anything different. You take a course on biomechanics, hoping to fix your client's nagging aches and pains, but the exercises you were taught aren't working. You watch other coaches on Instagram make it look so easy and think, I just need to do what they are doing. Does this sound like you? I get it. It's hard to navigate the vast amount of information out there, and we can't do it all alone. That is why a trusted mentor is so important. Mentors allow you to exchange ideas about current athletes and clients, gain strategies to apply your knowledge into actual exercises, and learn from their failures so you don't have to. Especially if you're self-employed or working in a gym, there isn't always someone there to push you to get better. The MBT Private Mentorship is the answer. We talk about clients, program design, exercise selection, business development, and finances. If you want more out of yourself, send me a DM on Instagram or reach out to me via email at mboland at michellebolin-training.com. And now, back to the show. It seems like those are the easy connections that coaches will make first. You know, if we're talking about different types of communication skills or if I'm doing like a little in-service or something, that that's the first thing I'll hear people say like, oh, yeah. So when I'm talking to my wife, I say this, but I'm really trying to do that. I feel like that's the easiest place, sometimes an entry point. But yeah, it spills over, you know, that we there's this I cannot think of the author right now, but his most notable quote is, we don't have relationships. We are relationships. It really is what makes us human. And you're right. Our our interactions with our clients, our patients, they are relationships. Oh, love that. Um, so what, are, what do you think most trainers are lacking in their coaching skills to motivate their clients and actually facilitate change? Mm-hmm. I think it is the capacity to tolerate the paradox that is... I am being giving, given money and someone's time and attention to help them change. And I also have no power over whether or not they change. That is a very difficult thing to wrap your head around. And, but if you can, and if you can realize this is 100% up to my client, they're the one with the agency. They're the one with the motivation. They're the one with all of the ingredients. And I am the Sherpa. I am the guide who's going to provide technical assistance and a little bit of cheerleading and help navigate the barriers. But this is not about me. That posture and that belief system really can help to be efficacious. It's a client centered model, essentially. And I, I think that many coaches feel the pressure of this industry, which is like, you got to have testimonials and you got to have before after pictures and you got to, you got to put out there into the universe that you can change people in 90 days or whatever. Um, and that you can make that happen, you know, that you have the power to make that happen. So undoing that and shifting it back to the client, having the power and the motivation. I, I think a lot of people miss that. And I think that leads to burnout really. Yeah, I agree. And then, you are balancing the business aspect with like this reality in terms of what can happen because, you know, I've talked to a few trainers about that 
of like making it a mandatory thing in your business to come to see you at least minimum two days a week, because it's like some people get a little frustrated where someone financially can really only see you one day a week or is only willing to see you one day a week. But how much influence can you have one day a week or how much change can you make one day a week? So that balance between business and like reality is is kind of hard in the fitness world. Absolutely. And the, and the whole, there's a whole industry within our industry around marketing, you know, fitness professionals and how should they market their business, how spending time and energy in social media and what to put out there and and how to present themselves. I, I think that is a very strong force and a strong current that people can get sucked up in. And, And then what I end up seeing is people who are spending all kinds of hours sitting in front of the computer And all kinds of hours on nights and weekends, texting with clients, you know, doing all this additional work that is unsustainable. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, Yeah, I'm sure you do see. How much burnout do you tend to see in trainers? Well, I have a little bit of a biased point of view because Mm -hmm. gym owners who bring me in to do in-services or workshops tend to be it's it's almost like preaching to the choir in a way those are people who get the importance of psychology Uh, and value mental health and see that their coaches are affected in that way um my understanding from people like molly galbraith is that there is a very high turnover rate she's from girls gone strong in in personal training that there's she calls it like a turn and burn um of people especially the first (laughs) year too um who I tend to see and like people who take my continuing education course are typically people who've been in, uh, who have some experience in the field and then who they know that they need this. So there's, there's already kind of like a, this is important. And I see this in my work. I don't often get to get in front of an audience unless I go to like a big conference of something or people who are like, who cares about this? You know, and then <laughs> I change well, their mind. I tend to refer to like the whole field more so less maybe in the private, but more in like the collegiate and like public setting of like the turn and burn. Cause you probably do see people who want this as a career and long term. There's definitely a culture in this industry where it's like, yeah, let's bring some young people in, work them to death. And they can do it because they don't have a lot of responsibility outside of their job. And maybe they, you know, have this like burning passion for And then, you know, as they age, get into a relationship, maybe have some kids and they're like, you know, I just cannot sustain this. And then it's just like, I need to do something else. And they're out of it. And like, you see a lot of that in the college environment. It's just like, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And actually, now that you say that, I can think of three people I've worked with in the last year who left the industry entirely. Two went back to grad school. One went into real estate. Cause they were just, and these are people who didn't even get to the having kid part. You know, it just was so unsustainable. Um, and the schedule in particular, I mean, just grueling. Yeah. Uh, yeah the collision environment is just like crazy with all the scheduling. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you know, you, if you do it right and do it for yourself, like, you know, yeah. you can definitely find a way. Mm-hmm. Um, Kind of changing courses a little bit. Our season three theme, as you know, is really about helping trainers and therapists learn to support clients through persistent pain experiences. 
Um, what are some skills that you think trainers need to best arm themselves with to be successful with working in people and persistent pain con an uh, persistent pain? Mm-hmm. Well, I thought about this um, question uh, when I saw it and what most practitioners want to do is help and relieve pain and fix and solve the problem. And most practitioners who I encounter care, really care. So that's not the part that I think people need to add. The, the part that I think will help practitioners and that is more needed is the capacity to tolerate your patient's discomfort Mm. or your patient downloading, telling you about how uncomfortable they are. And in, in um, psychology or in, in therapist work, there's an idea of compassionate presence. It's like, can you just be present and stay focused and attentive and in the room while the patient is talking about how much pain they're in? or how uncomfortable they are, how negative they feel, or how crappy this whole situation is. And a lot of practitioners, we get uncomfortable with that. We want to say, oh, but look at the bright side, or oh, we're going to do this and that. You know, we want to take it away. And I think about it almost like a, like a plank or like an ISO hold. It's like you need the strength to be able to sit with the pain that your client is in because we're expecting them to do the same thing. We want them to seek improvement and work on themselves and be able to tolerate that they're dealing with some pain, you know, two seemingly opposite things at the same time. We want them to do that. And I think we've got to be able to do that too. And it's hard. It is hard to be sitting with a patient who you're supposed to be helping and to hear them complaining about things that are hard and painful. And you can't take that away. You're working with them, but they're probably going to be dealing with this for a long time, if not on and off forever. Yeah. One of my biggest like lessons I've learned, um, I mean, this season has been very informative and educational. And, you know, one of the episodes we recorded was all about like how to validate someone and make them feel heard, listened to and understood and not just listening to them, not just jumping in to try to solve a problem. Because I think, you know, a few years ago, I remember, one of my clients who had basically tore everything in his knees. When I first started working with him, he could hardly walk and nonetheless, like do a split squat, do anything. Um, And we've built him up and now he's pushing sleds. He's lunging, he's jogging, which he thought he never could do. But I remember him one day saying, Oh, you know, I don't, will this pain like ever go away? Um, I just feel like I've been working so hard and like this and that. And I, for a moment, selfishly, I turned that on me and I thought that I was doing something wrong and I wasn't good enough because I wasn't solving the problem. I almost thought like, is he kind of trying to give me like feedback here? And we talked for a long time and he basically was like, no, he was like the polar opposite. I'm just venting of frustration, but like, if I reflect back on the past couple of years and working here, it's, you know, changed my life and done so well, but that was really hard for me because, you know, initially we didn't, initially I was just like, gosh, this is totally my fault. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing a horrible job here. Mm-hmm. And you see how the intention there is positive. Like 
you felt that because you care and you're invested and you want to help him. So there's this really like beautiful, caring, positive intention coming out there, but it obscures your ability to stay connected to the patient and be like, Ugh, yeah, you know, or whatever he needed in that moment. And also it takes a toll on you because then you're questioning or you're feeling unsure or you're feeling like you didn't do enough or something that has a cost. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's hard because you, you kind of talk about facilitating change, but if there's also this like lingering barrier for that, I think as trainers, we need to step back and have a appropriate perspective of what change actually does look like. Cause like even someone like you, who's like very fit, very active, you are still dealing with a, like a lingering pain issue, but you know, we can still make change in progress with you. It just may look a little bit different or not like this massive thing. Right. That's right. Yeah. So, um, when a trainer is working with a client, when would that instance be for maybe not like a red flag, maybe more like a yellow flag of like, when does that person maybe need to be referred to a psychologist? Um, what, what are what are some kind of red flags you would throw out? Mm-hmm. Well, I used to teach uh, abnormal psychology and students always used to ask, like, what's the difference between like every day, you know, just having a bad day and a red flag. And the two words are distress and impairment. So if if you are with a client and they're talking to you about being in distress or that what's happening with their thinking or their feelings or their relationships is impairing their life in -hmm. some way. Um, those are signs to say something. I also would add that if something they're talking about, something they feel or the way they're thinking is interfering with your ability to do your job. Mm-hmm. So like, let's say a client comes in and they spend the first 25% of the session downloading or venting or crying or yelling because they're so fill in the blank. I don't know, stressed, anxious, um, depressed, it's taking away from the time that you can do your intervention. And so that's a good opportunity to say, you know, I'm always here for you. You and I have fill in the blank, 25, 35, 45 minutes together. And what I notice is you really need to talk and that's taking time away for us to move. And I'm wondering if we could hook you up with a specialist who listens and talks and, and problem solves like that for a living, if it would open up the whole time for us. And then we could get down to me really being able to help you in treatment, you know, so, something like that. Um, I like to use the words I wonder or I notice because okay. those are a, more friendly and less um, confrontational than you should or I think... <laughs> something like that. So what what I say to coaches is you can always observe and describe. So I notice when we're training in between sets, you will really want to tell me about something crappy that happened at work or what's going on with you and your partner. And you know me, I could talk all day, but it's slowing down your training. We're having a hard time getting through all your sets and reps. And I wonder if it would be good for you 
number one, because I'm not a professional. And number two, because it's, it's slowing down your training to talk to somebody outside of our time together. How's that yeah. sound? I, I do. I've ha- I definitely have heard stories in the in the past of people who they come to train, quote unquote, but they really just want someone to talk to. There you go. <laughs> I've heard a few stories from other trainers, and it, it is hard to manage because, like we talked about before, you are in a relationship with them, and it's really hard to navigate the boundaries between like. This season of More Train, Less Pain is brought to you by my remote fitness programming service. We've been talking a lot about navigating the minefield that is attempting to train and improve fitness while dealing with persistent pain. If you feel like this directly applies to you, it can be daunting to attempt to construct your own workouts and long-term programs. Personally, one of the best decisions I ever made was to outsource that process and hire a coach. Someone who's external to the day-to-day reality of being in my body and my brain that can take my preferences, feedback, and athletic goals and coalesce them into a stable, doable fitness program that I can execute. It's an honor to serve in that role for my clients and my athletes. Stop banging your head against a proverbial wall and spinning your wheels changing workouts every week. Start investing in a long-term process to discover what your body is capable of and the long-term progress that you can make. Reach out via the contact tab on timrichart.com to learn more. Now, back to the show. Like listening to them as friends versus like clients. Yeah. And the thing I will add is that you may need to say something like I just said, eight to 12 times. Yeah. You know, it's like planting seeds. And it is important to reflect back to your clients what's happening. So let's say you do a four week program or whatever, you get to the end, you say, what's going well, what do we want to work on? You can say, well, I can speak to you're crushing this and this and this. One thing I notice is we talk a lot and I notice it's really helpful for you where you really seem to enjoy sharing with me or just kind of venting. And, um, I'm not against that, but I think we'd get more out of your time if we did more moving and a little bit less talking. And then you might have to say that I'm going to say it again because I noticed it again. Or then what it opens the door for you to one time in session say, I do not mean to cut you off, but we've got nine minutes left and you've got four more sets. Is it okay if I stop you here? So what every time you're doing that, you're dropping another seed, another data point for the client to be like, yeah, I'm letting it rip a lot in here or I'm leaning on her a lot in here. And, you know, particularly women might say something back like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I won't talk about my personal life. It's not that. It's just that I want to give you the most that I possibly can the hour you're in here. And it sounds like you. it really helps to talk. You know, and there's people who do that for a living <laughs> where you don't have to do any deadlifts or hip hinges or anything you don't want to do <laughs> or anything that takes away from, you know, you trying to express yourself. Yeah, that that's great. Because there's so many different situations in the way you're right. There's like two different people to me. There's like people who can still do what they need to do and talk at the same time. And then there's people who physically can't move if they're talking. And those are the people where I'm just like, ah, we like we are just not doing anything right now. Like 
hey, how about we do this? And then you can tell me kind of the rest of the story. Right. That's really hard. And then there's times where it's like, I, I need them not to talk so they can do something and say, if I, you know, um, pair breathing with something or want them to concentrate. And so, yeah, navigating when we're going to talk and when we're not going to talk is, is a difficult thing. I found that because I used to do like very low level breathing drills in the beginning. And I found that the first thing, what people want to do when they come in the door is chat, right? So it's like, okay, like, let's just ride the bike and chat for like three minutes to get this out of you. And then we'll move on. And it's like saying hello, right? There is something socially appropriate about that. Where like, I just need to say hello to you for, and depending on the culture, that could be seven, (laughs) seven to 12 to 25 minutes, you know, or whatever's going on with them. So I think that, see, that is a psychological intervention that you've done there to put the bike first. It gives them that window while they're in motion, right? Mm -hmm. Starting to move. So I think that's a great example of the way that, that you and anybody else listening is already doing psychology every day. That gives me hope, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So changing gears a little bit, I was reading um, some stuff from your, like your workshops and work. Um, and I think this applies to a lot of people with tough clients. Um, what does a trainer have to know about the draining effects of working with a quote unquote tough client? And what would a maybe tough client be to some trainers? Clients who I hear about a lot are the ones that suck all of the like empathy out of a trainer because they need, they, they ask for, or they evoke the desire to give a lot of positive reinforcement or to cheerlead them or to naysay something self-deprecating they're saying about themselves, um, or that they're, um, my mentor uses the expression, help rejecting complainers. So someone who comes to you for help, shoots down every single thing you say, or questions exercises, or says this doesn't work, that doesn't work, and then continues to complain. So clients like that, and and let me just say, you know, there's a spectrum, but even just helping nice, lovely, uncomplicated people still can drain your tank, right? And then, and so then you have a range of clients and then there's clients who are just like a vacuum cleaner and they, and you feel differently at the end of that session, or you start to dread it before the session. Cause you're like, here we go. I'm going to get my ass kicked you know, by what is about to happen for the next 45 minutes. Um, And that just, it takes a toll on the day. And then it takes a toll on the care you can provide after you see that person. And then it just takes a toll on your overall enjoyment of your work. Yeah, exactly. And going along with that, someone may not be difficult, but I'm sure you know a lot of clients who have I would say maybe short-term clients, maybe once a week, maybe they've only had them for a few weeks now where things are kind of new and it's kind of setting that aside. Like you probably know a lot of trainers who have had people for years. Mm -hmm. What would be some like things you have to navigate through that? Yeah. Well, there's, when there's a history, there's, 
and I hesitate to say this word because anybody, a, a lot of people are probably going to roll their eyes at this. But when you know somebody for a long time and you've been taking care of them for a long time, in a way, there is a love there. There is a, I care about this person. <laughs> See, good. Your reaction is good because it's probably representative. Probably plenty of people like, oh. But there just is your, it's like if you watch a show, like Game of Thrones, like you care about those characters by season five or six. Like there's a, there's a strong feeling there. So working with a client for a long time means you're more invested. You probably care about them more. You understand them more. And you may be more worn down or irritated by what their defenses or their resistances are. Just like old friends or you know, partners, <laughs> like they can push our buttons like no one else. So sometimes our oldest clients are the ones who, you know, they can, they can push those buttons. I've, you know, and I think there's clients who are our favorites who we've known for a long, long time. And then there's those clients who are probably always going to be either seeing a PT or working with the personal trainer and always going to be some degree of dissatisfied or discontent and, and so the history is longer and therefore a little bit more complicated. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Um, is there anything we haven't talked about today that you think we're missing or that you want to mention? I mean, there's so many. <laughs> oh, no. There's so many things. Give me I, one. I, Give me yeah. one. I guess the main thing I want to say to people listening is if you're listening and if you listen to this podcast, you care. You have this positive intention about helping and improving yourself in order to help better. Mm -hmm. um, so you're already thinking psychologically. You're already kind of ahead of the game. I mean, I have met plenty of practitioners over the years who are like, I don't need any of this psych crap. I just need, you know, programming and, um, you know, if a client doesn't want to work with me or if they can go somewhere else. I don't need to worry about retention. So that's probably not who's listening here. It's probably people who come with compassion and empathy and a desire to improve themselves. And you're doing great. And more hours and more patience or more followers on social media doesn't necessarily mean that you're more successful in your career. Um, and so taking care of yourself and making sure that you're not moving towards burnout, that you're in a sustainable zone for yourself um, is really important. I like that. Um, where can people learn more about you and maybe um, grab on to some additional resources? Yeah, thank you. So the easiest way to connect with me is my website, which is drlewisconsulting.com. Um, you can... Um, look at different articles I've written, podcasts I've been on. There's also a link there to a continuing education course that I offer. It's called Psych Skills for Fit Pros. Um, that is a do-at-your-own-pace online course. And the foci of that course are motivation, uh, the stages of change, the nature of behavior change, and then motivational interviewing, which I think is just a really important set of skills for practitioners to have and it's applied directly to fitness settings so that tends to be popular for personal trainers physical therapists and nutritionists or nutrition coaches and uh, you get some CEUs from NSCA and NASM for that 
Um, and then my Instagram feed is like my little baby. I try to post once or twice a week and, and the connection between fitness, specifically strength training and mental health. That That's awesome. For motivational interviewing has been a huge game changer in regards to clients who say, oh, I don't, I don't have any goals. Like there's nothing I really want to work on. <laughs> it's like, it really reflects your skill as a trainer to see if you can keep asking questions and actually dive in and help them identify that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I highly recommend that. Yeah. I, and I, what I love about motivational interviewing is it's a, it's very applied. So it's not the theory that really corresponds with it is the trans theoretical model of change. And that even just like the title is more drier and more academic. Um, but it it's the it's the theory and then motivational interviewing is the practice. So there's motivational interviewing in fitness and nutrition. That book is specifically for practitioners in the fitness area. And it's just filled with little vignettes and examples of things people would say. And I, I find it very approachable. Awesome. Perfect. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time today, Lisa. It was great chatting with you. Thanks for having me. If you're enjoying what Michelle and I are putting together here, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a review on your pod player of choice. Reviews help us climb the rankings, which improves our ability to help more coaches and therapists continue to push our industry and knowledge base forward. The intro and outro music for More Train, Less Pain was produced by Jacob Azurdia. You can find out more about his music by visiting his Instagram page, J underscore Z-U-R-D-I-A. Thanks for listening.